Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. We are two years old this week, or at the very least, we've been up and running for two years. This week, on October 8th, we issued a kind of manifesto about what we were trying to do and why. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes in case you're curious about all that. And maybe you'll be so moved by it that you will be roused to become a paid member of the Dispatch community. And uh, I'm very, very excited about today's guest. Uh, he is, in many ways, the sort of titular leader of the remnant. Although I should say that, you know, the... Um, uh, the remnant has few, really doesn't have leaders. We can talk about that more later. Um, and, uh, he has a new book out, uh, which is a collection of his writings, uh, called American happiness and discontents, the unruly torrent 2008 to 2020. We have today, George will, um, uh, Arguably, I think not even arguably anymore, uh, indisputably America's foremost conservative columnist. The only contender there was in my lifetime was Charles Krauthammer and uh, a mutual friend of ours. And he is sadly no longer with us. And even so, George was the guy who was writing as much for or to the conservative movement. Um, and, uh, and, for a long time, he made the conservative movement better because of it. Um, I'm not sure he would agree that it's still better because of it. But um, <laughs> George, welcome uh, back to the remnant. Thank you. Glad to be there. I was recently declared the last remnant of something. <laughs> I think the East, the East Coast something or other uh, in a book review. But uh, I, I think remnant's a lovely word. Um, but I did want to ask you, because you know the title of this podcast is from a famous essay, or once famous essay, by Albert J. Nock called Isaiah's Job, where he talks about how there's just this remnant of people left, and when times go a cropper, um, all you can do is write and try to speak to that remnant. Um, so I'm kind of curious, were you, a f I mean, I know Nock died, a, you know, years before you were born, but uh, do you have... Um, were you ever a fan of his? Were you ever influenced by him? Or do you sort of not much interested in him? I was, uh, partly because Bill Buckley was so fond of him. I read uh, Memoirs of a Superfluous Man. Uh, I'm not a Jeffersonian as he was, but uh, he wrote wonderfully and had high spirits and everyone ought to know him. So he has a famous line where he says, I'm butchering it because I read it a long time ago, but something along the lines of uh, that it, professionally he was something, he was, he was like a man who arrived in Alaska with a cargo hold full of straw hats. Um, <laughs> in other words, no one wanted to buy what he had. Yeah. Um, for a very long time, as I said, you were the, the leader of the, the leader, or a leader, you know, along with William F. Buckley and a handful of others of the mainstream American conservative movement, I think we can both agree that, that the, the, we, we came to a fork in a road at some point. Um, what is your diagnosis about why this happened? You know, and the, this you can define as you see fit. Well, one of the things we've learned, uh, since the 2016 election is that there are a lot fewer conservatives of the stripe. I consider authentic conservatives than I thought, uh, fewer than I wish there were. Uh, and 
I don't think they disappeared on election day 2016. I think this is a long time development. Conservatism is, uh, I won't say a deflating persuasion, but a one that keeps saying, no, no, you can't do that, or this won't work, or the proper scope and actual competence of government won't permit that. So it requ- it's downbeat. It, there's a downbeat side to it, and uh, a lot of people don't want to hear that anymore. Uh, so uh, that's the first thing. Second, I don't think we're teaching people the sort of things necessary to have conservatives. That is, if conservatism is, as I think it is, an attempt to conserve the American founding, natural rights and all that, Madisonian constitutional architecture, in order to have conservatives this stripe, they have to know who James Madison was. And I'm not sure they're going to learn that in schools anymore. Uh, Although, learn that James Madison owned slaves. That's about it. Uh, so, so conservatives and didn't have any good singing parts in Hamilton. And exactly. Yeah. And, and so conservatism has a kind of educational prerequisites that I think are not being attended to. Um, all right. So you're this book, uh, American happiness, uh, starts, runs from 2008 to 20. I can't remember. I don't have it in front of me to 2020. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, there's actually a remarkable amount of social science and economic literature, other economic literature, arguing that financial panics or financial crises have a tendency to create populist upheavals. Um, And uh, there's, and and that, that recessions and other financial crises caused by it that are financial in nature rather than some other exogenous shock tend to have a much longer tail, particularly culturally and politically. Do you think it's possible that one of the reasons we're where we are is because of is, dates back to the financial crisis of 2007, 2008? I do. Uh, I, I think it's also important to tell our friends on the left to beware because they thought that financial crises would drive people to the left. And I don't think that's true. I think more often than not, more powerfully, uh, it drives people to the right, into resentments, into xenophobia, into uh, a kind of grievance culture that is more readily addressed by populists from the right, uh, be it Huey Long. You make, people might object to Huey Long being called populist of the right, but I think it fits. Uh, He was remarkably unlike William Jennings Bryan, who was a populist of the left. So there's no question that uh, as the the winds of creative destruction uh, blew through American society, particularly after Ronald Reagan and Reaganism unleashed the creative potentials of our economy, that had been suffocating during the 70s particularly, that the people saw more of the destruction than the creativity. And uh, they, they found things to blame. For example, the best achievement of the Carter, uh, sorry, of the Clinton presidency, achieved largely with uh, uh, Republican votes, was the passage of the North American Free Trade Agreement. People said, well, NAFTA caused uh, something like a million jobs over 20 years. The normal churning of the American economy destroys a million jobs every 18 days. It just happens. That's called uh, capitalism. And a lot of people don't like it. And there's a sense in which I think after, the, after 2008, the American people were tired. They thought, you know, this is all very well. We understand creative destruction, but it's just too wearisome to put up with. And they wanted rest and protection and protection, the desire for protectionism prevailed. Uh, Didn't work. Uh, Mr. Trump said the steel jobs are coming back to the Monongahela Valley of southwestern Pennsylvania. They're of (laughs) course not. Uh, 
He said the jobs are coming back to General Motors jobs are coming back to Michigan. They're not. But uh, people didn't seem to care that they weren't. They felt that, you know, the, the, in polling, the most informative, the most salient question that I think poll takers ask in a presidential polling, for example, is does the candidate care about people like me? And that's why politics has become so performative. You, you perform caring. And whether or not it works is, is largely beside the point. So is this where, you know, you, you say in the beginning of the book that, um, that you want to help readers think through and thereby diminish our current discontents. Um, what are the actual sources of these discontents? Is it, is it, is it, is it the churn and creative the Schumpeterian creative destruction of capitalism? Is that all of it? Is that uh, part of it? What is, what is, what is driving the urge towards this desire for essential, the, the, the craving for security as, as you put it? Well, I'm not sure that the cravings for security that I've, I've just described is the heart of this. I think the heart of this is people feel despised. They feel condescended to, they feel, that their status, they're, they're locked into a low-status existence. The reason I think that's important is, ask yourself, in the, in the 1800s, when uh, the country was being pulled apart, there were things you could argue about. What should we do with public lands? How do we answer the question of should slavery be extended into the territories? Stuff like that. Immigration. What legislation can you propose or draft to satisfy Trump voters who feel, not without reason, that they are despised by a large part of the country? How do you address this with laws? Which means this is, if you can't address it with laws and policies, this is in some senses not as normally understood a political problem. It's something else. And that's what makes it so hard to get get one's wrap one's mind around this, uh, because normally in politics you have a grievance. Fine, here's here's a law: sixty four Civil Rights Act, sixty five Voting Rights Act. We know what to do. I don't know what to do about this, other than continue to have performative politicians who say I care about you and I don't like the other side. Your happiness happens to be the unhappiness of the other tribe, but it has, it's not politics as normally understood. So, I mean, does this mean, you know, someone get me to my fainting couch, but does this mean that, that Richard Hostetter was right all along and that status anxiety <laughs> is, is, the, is the root of all problems in politics? Well, Richard Hostetter is not right all the time, uh, <laughs> all along. Uh, it's always been there, I think. Uh, I don't know why it's become so virulent nowadays. It has something to do with the fact that uh, there are divergent cultures. No one has done this better than Charles Murray in his book, Coming Apart, about Fishtown and Belmont, the, the diverging fictional communities. But uh, Higher, higher education is one of the markers here. Let's take this in. 200 years ago, the great source of wealth in the United States was land, and so much of it, we were giving it away. 150 years ago, the great source of wealth was heavy fixed capital. Think of Andrew Carnegie's steel mills or Cornelius Vanderbilt's New York Central Railroad. Today, the great source of wealth is mind, information, education, what we call human capital, and it is not evenly distributed and cannot be made evenly distributed naturally or socially through the through the economy. What this means is we are becoming increasingly a cognitively stratified society. And cognitive stratification allocates status, not just material rewards, which is important itself, but all but the immaterial rewards of status and prestige uh, unevenly and ruthlessly. 
That's why we have today a serious movement questioning the idea of meritocracy, because not because meritocracy isn't objective, but because it is. That people feel that uh, if in a meritocratic society they do not rise, they have been objectively identified as in some way inferior, and it's a it's a serious problem. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I always try to tell college students, um, or pretty much anybody who will listen to me, people next to me on the bus, whatever, uh, <laughs> is that um, that in today's society, complexity is a subsidy. That the more the higher you make the barriers to uh, entry into a successful life, a prosperous life, whatever, uh, to start a business, you know, a thousand different things, the people with the cognitive, social, or political capital to allow them to navigate around that are going to do better and they're going to get around it. If you have access to good lawyers or if you're just really smart or well-educated or you've been taught, you know, through the, to learn the rules, then complexity isn't a problem for you. It's a barrier to entry for your competitors. And, um, and it seems to me that, that this, cogn- this cognitive stratification has come with an explosion of, of complexity as a, sort of as a public choice, you know, construct to protect the sort of cosseted ranks of the cognitive elite. And I don't know how you undo that other than, you know, Mansur Olson said it takes a war and total destruction to be able to start an economy over. Um, I don't know how you fix it. The Black Death was also very helpful. That, yeah, uh, yeah. Be- because it uh, killed off so many workers that those who were left were in demand. Uh, and revolutions, plagues, do tend to scrape the barnacles off the ship of state. But consider the most radical thing, and it is seriously radical, that the Biden administration has done. That is advancing the idea of equity rather than equality. Traditionally, Americans have said, we're for equality of opportunity, not of outcomes. And Equality of opportunity is a really problematic concept. We all understand that because family advantages are so real. Family structure is such a predictive uh, element of of human life. And families are really good at passing on their advantages, as they should be. We don't want to discourage parents, Lord knows, from looking after their children, trying to do the best they can. So along comes the Biden administration, which is an empty vessel into which has now been poured the idea of equity. Equity is uh, a society without disparate outcomes. Uh, Meritocracy is all about disparate outcomes. So a society without disparate outcomes means presumptively that disparate outcomes uh, indicate an unjust social arrangement. Uh, this This is truly radical. In fact, it's hard to think of a, of a more radical idea that has been in general circulation in the United States in 240 years. This is an overthrow of what America, the, the idea of an open society and careers open to talents and all the rest. Uh, so be, because what it means is every disparate outcome is a license for an incitement for government to iron things out to a level the playing field, to use an overused and insidious metaphor. What lowers, what, what levels the playing field are bulldozers. <laughs> and government becomes a bulldozer. It's going to knock down things, and it's going to make things equal by force. That's what government is, force, largely. Um, so the, I, I, I don't think Americans have yet fathomed how radical the idea of equity is. Now, the idea that Joe Biden got to Washington in 1973, uh, the idea that Joe Biden is understands all this is preposterous. Uh, to him, equity, equality, potato, potato, who cares? Uh, but there are people in his administration who care about this a lot. So one of the one of the, I would say, the overriding themes, and you talk about this at some at, at one point in the book as well, um, when you're trying to get people to understand their discontents, is to understand that, w- in good conservative fashion, that uh, 
that there really is nothing new under the sun that we've been in bad places before. And, um, and I, I heard you say somewhere, you know, the, one of the most overused and inappropriate used words in the journalists lexicon these days is unprecedented. Um, so, uh, you know, for those like me who are at times feeling like the living will envy the dead, um, what, you know, when you look back in American history, where are the spots we can say, I mean, with the obvious exception of the civil, you know, inclusion of the civil war itself, um, where are the spots you can say it's been worse? Um, or, you know, we got out of the dark spot. Um, and so we can do it again. And like, what, what, when you sift through that, when you sift through the, the, the creek of history for nuggets of gold to give people hope, where do you look? Well, one of the things that we do is we, we don't use the phrase constitutional crisis promiscuously. There's been one constitutional crisis in the United States that is a crisis in which the constitutional institutions could not cope, and that was the Civil War. They coped uh, with the Alien and Sedition Acts, which were uh, sunsetted anyway. Uh, they coped with the hysteria that produced the Palmer Raids in the 1920 after the, the Red Scare, after the end of the First World War, coped with McCarthyism, coped with Jim Crow. Uh, we're pretty good at coping when you look at it. Uh, what, what alarms me now is, and this is new, dare I say unprecedented, is that we now have an enormous educational machine that instead of producing elites, who believe in the country are producing elites who rather regret the country. Uh, at least they are taught so to do. Uh, the, que the question in any society at any time is not whether elites are going to rule, but which elites are going to rule. And the challenge of democracy, this comes straight from Walter Burns, a great uh, man at AEI for many years. Uh, Walter Burns said, the, the challenge of democracy is to get consent to worthy elites. And uh, you have to have worthy elites to get consented to. And I'm not sure we're reproducing worthy elites now. Uh, well, this is something I talk about on this podcast, podcast a lot. I am somewhat fascinated with it by this, um, this idea, this, uh, I can't remember his first name, uh, Professor Turchin uh, came up with that uh, Graham Wood wrote up in the Atlantic a little while ago about how the problems that we have now is we have surplus elites. We have, and whenever societies have surplus elites, you end up getting um, factions of elites determined to smash the existing system because they can't find their their notch in it, which dovetails with something I was a big theme in, in, in my book, Suicide the West, which was why Schumpeter thought capitalism was doomed. That the argument was that uh, because the children of successful captains of industry and then the grandchildren end up becoming avant-garde poets and, um, and uh, alienated from the system and sort of in, in the same way that Nietzsche talks about you know, in the genealogy of morality, the way the priests basically undermine the knights by undermining the nature of the system itself and you get sort of a radical bourgeois rising elite that wants to overthrow, turn vi virtues into vices. And so, um, uh, I can, I, I'm with you on this idea that the elite manufacturing industry is creating elites that want to undermine the very system that allowed them to be elites in the first place and really take a soapbox to the, take a sledgehammer to the soapbox that they're standing on. I just don't understand how, what you do about it um i mean are you in favor of smashing the higher ed monopoly and and how does that actually help us fix the problem <laughs> no i'm not for smashing and i i uh, am a faculty brat son of a college professor i briefly was a college professor uh, i've been able to study at two of the top 10 institutions in the world uh, I think the evolution through 800 years of political and ecclesiastical thickets of the great research universities of the world it is 
arguably the finest fruit of Western civilization. I believe in this stuff. That's why I write so much about its degradation. Uh, what you do about it is, first of all, you fight back. We have a real living example of how to do this right, and that's called the Federalist Society. About 40 years ago at Yale Law School, uh, the first Federalist Society chapter was founded, and uh, 40 years later, the American judiciary is different because of this, and American law schools are different. Uh, so uh, history is made by intense, compact, idea-driven minorities. The Federalist Society is one. The progressives today are in Congress are another example. The Bolsheviks. Uh, Bolsheviks. I, I just looked it up. In, in, in January 1917, a rather momentous year, there were 24,000 Bolsheviks in a nation with 12 time zones. Didn't matter. They won. Uh, so, it, in, in, in ten, so you say, what do you do about it? You cultivate your own intense, compact, idea-driven minorities. That's the first thing. Now, see, the, the people who think as you and I do have an advantage. We have the American vocabulary. The American vocabulary, Americans think and speak in categories, natural rights, uh, limited government, all that, 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 uh, that is on our side. So the, the other side's disadvantage is they speak in, in, in a strange tongue for most Americans. And that will be a, that will be an equity. Once you begin to unpack the ideas behind it, people recoil from it. They just will. Um, yeah. I mean, so that that raises another thing. It's not so much what we do about it, but having the patience to tolerate bad times. If put it this way, there, I, I honestly believe that this push for equity will not work because it cannot work. Right at the end of the day. Taken to it, taken to its logical extreme, we are going to have to have mandatory requirements for for white midgets in the NBA. Taking <laughs> equity to its extreme, right? And that's not going to work. No one's going to want that. The notion that that some people just care more about some you know some vocations than other people. There are biological differences between men and, and cultural differences between men and women that going to produce more male physicists and more female uh, veterinarians and they're both going to be happier because they found their spot so eventually it's not going to work enormous damage can be done in the meantime but there is a tendency among conservatives to feel as if because they they think they're right but not right enough to be willing to let people learn that they're wrong right i mean edmund burke says Example is the school of mankind, and he will learn it no other. In other words, sometimes you just have to show people their ideas stink before they'll accept it because they're not going to take your word for it. And that kind of temperamental patience is gone in large spots of the left and right um, these days. And I think it's maybe because of the culture of gratification. I don't know. Yeah, what is demoralizing is that you have to show them over and over and over again. Socialism being the great example. Socialism never works. Socialism can't work. Socialism will not die nonetheless for a lot of interesting reasons. Did I ever tell you my favorite Trotsky story? Uh, uh, in 1964, my second year at Oxford, the Oxford University Press published the third and final volume of Isaac Deutscher's rather worshipful biography of Trotsky. And the Oxford Marxist Society said, we're going to have a tea for, to celebrate this event. And so I trotted around to see this. It, and Deutscher was there, and he gave a, a short speech in which he said the following. Proof of Trotsky's farsightedness is that <laughs> none of his predictions have come true yet. Uh, the classic true believer, that, that is, uh, uh, he had a head full of propositions that could not be falsified. And, and uh, socialism is that way. I mean, in 1945, when the post-war labor government came into power, one of its leading lights was a Welsh miner, great rhetorical gifts named Anurian Bevan. And he said, our nation, 
Britain is bedded on coal and surrounded by fish. It would take a genius to create a shortage of either. In two years, socialism produced a shortage of both. Doesn't <laughs> matter. Doesn't matter. Uh, it's just an idea that will never die. Um, I want to move away from higher ed and, and towards judicial and constitutional issues in a second, which is a major theme of your writing and of the book. But I, I do think people need to hear your brief explanation. Obviously, I agree with it about, you know, your, your elevator pitch, let's put it that way. Someone, you're in a long elevator ride and someone says to you, what do you think of the 1619 project? Um, and, you know, uh, and why shouldn't they teach it in schools? Uh, A, the 1619 Project is an attempt by the New York Times to reframe American history. Why that is a newspaper's job, I do not know. Uh, The problem of the 1619 Project is it is factually absurd. Uh, I mean, you can say, okay, the first slaves arrived in 1619, wish they hadn't, they did, but the idea that that's the real American founding is preposterous. But what the factual absurdities in the 1619 Project turns on this, the, the assertion that, in fact, the American Revolution, which we mistakenly think had to do with the founding of the country, the revolution was fought in order to defend slavery. Now, the argument is that Lord Dunsmore of Virginia, the royal governor of Virginia, said that African Americans escaping enslavement who joined the British in resisting the revolution, uh, that promise caused the revolution. Now, it's it's absurd to begin with. He said, the revolution's underway, and this is going to be our response. And the 1619 Project says, that started the revolution. Well, Dunsmore said that, I believe, in November 75, after long after Lexington and Concord, after George Washington was put at the head of the army, after the Boston Massacre, the Boston Tea Party, the Stamp Act, all that stuff, the Sons of Liberty. It's just, you can't say A causes B if all these other causes are in. So it's historically illiterate. That's the problem with the six. That's my, it's a long elevator ride, but that's my elevator <laughs> answer. No, that, that works, that works. Okay, so uh you have been on something of a journey in your political philosophy over the years uh you um you've become more libertarian which is not uh something one normally associates with uh newly minted octogenarians um (laughs) (laughs) and um So, uh, can you sort of I- I explain why it is that you have um, moved away from a sort of social, con- a Gertrude Himmelfarb, Irving Kristol, social conservatism towards a more uh, uh, libert, you know, Cato Institute constitutionalism? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, public choice theory helped the idea that uh, the romance of government has, has fallen away from after more than half a century here at the seat of government. Uh, I I think James Buchanan and those guys were right to say simply that uh, it is a mistake to think that people in government are fundamentally different from people in the private sector. People in the private sector try to maximize profits. People in government try to maximize power, and they're both uh, a cause of a certain wariness. I'm libertarian-ish in the sense that I think before the government interferes with the freedom of the individual or of two or more individuals collaborating together, the government ought to, A, have a good idea, and B, ought to clearly state what it is. Uh, that, that's all, but that's enough. I mean, if you adhere to that principle, a whole lot of government resistance to what to sprawling, intrusive government is justified. Biggest change in my thinking in 50 years is when I came to Washington on the first day of the 1970s, January 1, 1970, I was, as most conservatives then were, uh, an advocate of judicial restraint on the grounds that uh, we, had, we, were, we were all in sort of recoil from the rather freewheeling jurisprudence of the Warren Court. Uh, 
I have changed about 180 degrees since then. Bob Bork was a very good friend of mine, and Bob was a, a, in the tradition of Oliver Wendell Holmes. That is, majorities have a right to do what they want simply because they are majorities. Holmes famously said, if the American people want to go to hell, I will help them. It's my job. And I decided that's not the job of, of a jurist. The job of a jurist is to stand against uh, majorities in many cases, that judicial deference is often dereliction of duty, that uh, America is not about majority rule, it's about liberty. Uh, can I go on for two minutes more on this subject? Absolutely. No, I find this okay. stuff really interesting, important. Uh, okay. I, I grew up in Champaign, Illinois, downstate, Lincoln country. And according to local lore, it was in the Champaign County Courthouse in 1854 that Abraham Lincoln, a traveling, prosperous railroad lawyer, learned that Stephen A. Douglas, the Illinois senator, had succeeded in passing the Kansas-Nebraska Act, uh, his attempt to solve the question of what to do about whether slaves could be taken into the territories. And his solution was popular sovereignty. Vote slavery up, vote slavery down. It's a matter of moral indifference. The morally important thing is the majority should rule. Lincoln's ascent to greatness resulted from his recoil against this. They know America is not about a process, majority rule. It's about a condition, liberty. Uh, in 19, in the mid-60s, when I was writing a doctoral dissertation at Princeton, I, it was titled Beyond the Reach of Majorities. That phrase comes from Justice Jackson's opinion in the second of the flag salute cases. In 1939, the Supreme Court upheld a Pennsylvania law requiring Jehovah's Witnesses and everyone else to salute the flag at the beginning of the school day. The Jehovah's Witnesses considered this blasphemy. Uh, the opinion was written by Felix Frankfurter, uh, a Jewish justice who had come from Austria where he had seen, as a Jew, people treated differently because of their religion, children treated differently, and he didn't want any of that here. Understand that. And war clouds were lowering over the world in 1939, and national unity and was considered something worth cultivating. Just three, four years later, in West Virginia v. Barnett, the Supreme Court turned on a dime and said, no, the, and Jackson said, the very purpose of a Bill of Rights is to place certain things beyond the reach of majorities, above the vicissitudes of politics. So I've been at this, I guess, for a long time now. <laughs> My doctoral dissertation to this, and and I, I, I should have. Uh, the seed was in the doctoral dissertation, but it didn't flower until the '80s and '90s when I decided that uh, Clark Neely and some of these wonderful people at the Cato Institute, Clark's wonderful book on judicial engagement, which is the alternative to judicial deference uh, has been very influential to me as as has the been have, have been the writings of Timothy Sandifer at the Goldwater Institute Phoenix and, and others I'm their students and so just to explain to people what judicial engagement is it's it's you wouldn't call it activism which is why you don't call it activism but um right. it's um it's that the the courts should be more engaged, more uh, assertive in protecting uh, non-majoritarian prerogatives, you know, individual right. rights and liberties right. and whatnot. Right. Uh, the, Bob Bork and his good friend at the Yale Law School, Alexander Bickel, uh, talked a lot about the counter-majoritarian difficulty. The theory that judicial review and strong judicial power was an anomaly in a nation committed to uh, regular elections uh, and majoritarianism generally. And to which my answer and Neely's answer and Sandifer's and others is there's no counter majoritarian difficulty. The, the point a constitution is a counter majoritarian doctrine. A constitution says certain things you can't do. I don't care how many of you I want it, you can't have it. Congress shall make no law, abridging this, that, and the other thing, establishing religion, even if everyone wants it, can't do it, sorry, we've decided there are certain things beyond the reach of majorities. Uh, and uh, so there is no dilemma. 
So it, it, since we're on majorities and majoritarianism, it seems to me that one of the defining pathologies of the left and the right these days is sort of a false majoritarianism. Both, both parties, both sides believe they are the authentic majority of the country and that therefore they should have their way in all things, leaving aside, which leaves aside the fact that even if that were true, which it is not, um, they still shouldn't have their way in all things because that's not how the system works. And, um, that said, the, the, this majoritarianism, which I don't think is symmetrical because the two sides occupy different institutions and different locales, but particularly on the left, you're talking about equity. Um, a lot of the stuff, just the, the policy stuff that comes with equity is profoundly anti-majoritarian, right? I mean, if, if we are going to say that you should have, you know, uh, appoint people based on their color, color of their skin and all of these various things, 13% of America is black. That would suggest, and it, w- it would just, my point is identity politics runs directly at odds with a majoritarian impulse. And, um, and so does populism, uh, right-wing populism or left-wing populism. It seems to me that this is something that's fairly different in this moment is the, this nature of people believing that they are, um, they are the true majority and that therefore they should be able to impose their vision of how the entire country should operate on everybody, whether it's the sort of Vermilion right or the Elizabeth Warren left. And, um, I'm not sure. I I st- I'm getting back to where we started. I don't. I still don't understand where it originally came from that the strictures against this stuff were so fragile. I think what they're saying, the Vermilion right or the Warren left, is their position will be the majority once people are properly educated, <laughs> properly socialized. Uh, when we have a culture that leaves a proper impress on malleable creatures, what the left and the right share is the belief that human nature is malleable, human beings are malleable. We take on the impress of the culture we're in. The culture can be shaped by laws and government. And uh, so let's get on with it, is what they're saying. Uh, And uh, in a generation or so, we will have remade uh, uh, the American person, and uh, things will be hunky-dory. Now, we again, this new soviet man new german man we've been people have been doing this for a long time and it doesn't work out well but that doesn't mean it's not going to keep on being tried so um we're circling back to this or i've lamely circled us back to this um at the beginning of the conversation you said how some would bristle at calling huey long a populist of the right and that william jennings bryan was most certainly a populist of the left um, there's a, there's a nomenclature problem or a, a lexicological problem in all of this that really kind of bothers me. Um, and this was a, you know, this is a point I've been arguing about since I wrote liberal fascism, where if you actually take a step back and you define and you use, um, you define your terms and you look at things, if you strip away the rhetoric for a little bit and just look at the policies behind things, um, what, populism to me is inherently left-wing in this sense. It believes that the state should impose its will, the will of one group on everybody that the, the, the means of production or the economy, however you want to define it, um, should be tailored to an ideological end to protect certain groups and individuals. Um, it was such a revelation to me having grown up as a pseudo intellectual demi Jew on the upper West side of Manhattan, um, <laughs> who had heard so much about how father Coughlin was this right wing radio priest to actually read the platform of the, uh, national committee for social justice, which he led, um, to discover that, oh my gosh, this guy is a left winger. Um, I mean, just in terms of, you know, nationalize this, socialize that, you know, subsidize the other thing. Um, and so now we have, uh, JD Vance talking about how we should, that, that his, what separates him out is that he wants to seize the assets of the Ford foundation 
and all other nonprofits he disagrees with, and yes. all the nonprofits he disagrees with, and sp- and spend that money on the working man. Um, yeah. I I understand why we call JD Vance right wing, but it's not conservative, right? It's yeah. not it's right. not what we grew up, what I grew up reading in you, <laughs> and. How do we clear up, you know, the, what is it Confucius calls for? The rectification of the names? Um, yeah. We need a rectification of the names. With regard to J.D. Vance, I would, I would defend him against the charge of sincerity. I, I, think, he's <laughs> a, I, I think he's a market-driven uh, person, and this is just where the winds are blowing at the moment. But uh, it used to be people would say, okay, well, who's a conservative? And I'd say, who would you vote for in 1912 presidential election? That'll settle it. If you're if you're for either Taft, uh, either Teddy Roosevelt or or Woodrow Wilson, you're not a conservative. You vote for William Howard Taft. Well, fast forward to the question of populism. People say, what what's conservatism? And my answer is, it's everything populism isn't. Populism says the people. It's it's a sort of turn on. Mencken's definition of democracy is the belief, that, the belief that the people know what they want and deserve to get it good and hard. Uh, populism says popular passions are self-ratifying. That uh, there is, is a moral imperative, the moral imperative of populism is to translate as directly as possible into policy the passions of the people. None of this Madisonian nonsense about refining and, and filtering passions through cooling institutions. Uh, therefore, if it's going to be directly translated into, into policy, it has to be done so by an emancipated strong leader, uh, a president not tied down by the separation of powers and all the rest, and again, strict you've written about in in liberal fascism, the Woodrow Wilson's emancipated leader. Uh, That's what populism is, and that's exactly what conservatism stands against. Yeah, it's very frustrating to me because I've been making arguments against populism for 20 years, and until five years ago, no conservatives disagree with me, and then all of a sudden it makes me this weak-willed, you know, loser. But, like, and the response (laughs) is always from people saying, uh, they always say, you don't understand, people are really angry. And I always say, I understand that people are really angry. When was the last time you made a really great decision when you were just blindingly furious? You know? <laughs> and, Ang- anger is a passion, and conservatives believe that passions are, in a way, the, definite article, the political problem. That we are passionate people, and, and we're, yet we have to live to one another, so we need some institutional architecture and social institutions like education to cope with this. Compassion is, listen to the word, a passion. Therefore, when people say, well, I'm compassionate, therefore get out of the way, uh, I'm going to do something. No, that's that's also a passion, and uh, and it's also a problem. I do want to, because this has been... uh, I wouldn't say a bee in my bonnet, but I've been interested in, in getting your expon- fuller, a, a more effulgent explanation of all of this. Um, in a column, which I which is in the book, you were talking about Bill Buckley, and I think you're absolutely right about Bill. Bill, um, who you, you knew much better than I did, but I did get to work under him for a few years before he died. Um, uh, he, you make the point that Bill always, as you put it, or he's quoting Al Felsenberg, um, walked a tightrope between elitism and populism. And he understood that populism had its place in American politics and Parkus, you couldn't get rid of it entirely anyway, but it needed to be channeled towards proper ends. And, um, but then you have this, this line, you have this line about Whitaker Chambers where you say, uh, Buckley to his credit, befriended Whitaker Chambers, whose autobiography Witness became a canonical text of conservatism. Unfortunately, it injected conservatism with a sour, whiny, complaining, crybaby populism. It is the screechy and dominant tone of the loudish faux conservatism that today is erasing Buckley's legacy of infectious cheerfulness and unapologetic embrace of high culture. 
Now, I am with you with the sour, whiny, complaining, cryberry populism charge. I'm with you 100% on that. I, I just, it, it took me by surprise that you would attribute that, uh, that, that you would make Whitaker Chambers the Fonz et Origio of this strain <laughs> of American conservatism. I don't think he originated it, but uh, because he was such a good writer, uh, he gave it momentum that it uh, otherwise perhaps would not have had to such a degree. Uh, conservatives ought w- w- need Buckleyan cheerfulness, brio, elan. This is fun. Uh, my man Goldwater uh, seemed to growl to people, and uh, and they don't like being growled at. <laughs> and uh, I mean, actually. Goldwater was terrific fun, but uh, uh, it didn't come across that way. Uh, therefore, uh, it seems to me, look, it's, yes, the left has academia, Hollywood, most of the media, um, et cetera, et cetera. Still, they can be resisted. Uh, when, uh, uh, in about the late 60s, or actually AEI goes all the way back to the 40s, but conservatives said, all right, we don't have an intellectual infrastructure on campuses that the other side does. Let's create our own. AEI, Heritage, Cato, at the state level, the Goldwater Institute and the others all over this country. It's like the Federalist Society. Again, um, just build your own. Build back better. How's that? Uh, <laughs> and uh, we're doing that, actually. Our, our side is, is building really good stuff. Um, I, 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 I am with you on the need to be a happy warrior, and I try to do it. I take ideas seriously, but not myself too seriously. Um, and, I, um, and as I often tell people, we're always going to be outnumbered because man's natural precondition is to want to live in a big group and get their, get their way as, um, by the shortest distance necessary. Um, um, and being on the side of Liberty is on the right side of the only really great fight in human affairs. And you should be happy about it. I agree with all of that as a, but the analysis, I'm just not as cheerful as you are. I mean, I, I look at what has happened to a bunch of conservative institutions on the right, and they're going the wrong way. Um, Claremont, Hill, I think Hillsdale is still a great school on campus, but it's it's it, the arguments that it's projecting off campus are bad and problematic for the most part. It's still a lot of great people there. Um, and, uh, you know, even the Bradley Foundation, I think, is going the wrong way. And I can, I can list some other places. And so, um, and meanwhile, my problem with the new institution argument, which I'm sympathetic to in specific circumstances, um, I think it's been a mixed bag, Fox News, as a new institution, you know, build your own institution. Uh, and I say that as a Fox News contributor, so people can interpret my understatement as they wish. Um, but the the fact of the matter is, is that Harvard and Princeton, your alma mater, are go- and places like that, have cultural import and influence that some new university is is going to be hard pressed to catch up with anytime soon. You can't make new old friends and you cannot make new old institutions and taking back those old institutions, not entirely, you know, not, not a Gramscian March kind of thing, but just simply having foothold more Harvey Mansfields at Harvard rather than five more Hillsdales seems like a much better project. Um, but it's hard and we seem to be sure backsliding is all I'm saying. But there's Robbie George's, uh, James Mm -hmm. Madison Institute at Princeton, which is great is, is what what the Marine Corps is. It's a force multiplier, small, but really good. Uh, and it has an outsized effect on the campus. It gives people the sense that they're not alone. And that's enormously important for young people on a college campus. FIRE, Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. Uh, When I was on the Bradley Foundation board, uh, we had 
for the Bradley Prizes every year, I could not get them interested in giving the Bradley Prize to FIRE. It just seems to me that FIRE is one of the really indispensable groups in America right now. Um, They award green, amber, or red lights to universities on the basis of whether they're good, problematic, or awful regarding speech. And people are, universities are not competing for that. They want the green light. It's it's like uh, the U.S. news rankings of colleges, only much more important, much more accurate. Uh, So the progress is going to be made. I I agree progress is going to be made. I just, it, 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 from my corner of the trade, and look, I'm, I started, I co-founded with Steve Hayes, a media company to do what I didn't think there was enough of in the media. And um, I, you know, because a lot of my heroes on the right, the one thing that they did that, I mean, among the many things that they did that I never did was start an institution. You know, Irving started the public interest. He started yeah. national interest. He started a lot the of public interest. The public interest at what? At its peak, 5,000 subscribers, something uh, like that. Irving used to say, if we have more than 7,000 readers, we're doing something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but uh, their contributors, Nat Glazer, Daniel Bell, James Q. Wilson, Irving Crystal, uh, 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 all the rest, Pat Moynihan, what velocity they gave to ideas. I mean, tremendous. I've, uh, you've heard me say before uh, that Bill Buckley is the most consequential journalist of the 20th century because uh, without Buckley, no National Review. Without National Review, no Goldwater uh, nomination, no Goldwater nomination, no Reagan 16 years later. Uh, So Buckley won the Cold War, period. (laughs) I used to make, I used to quote you on this when I had to write (laughs) fundraising letters for National (laughs) Review. It was like, we... We won the Cold War. Give us some money. Right. <laughs> you know, we look what we saved you. <laughs> Actually, to be fair, Vaclav uh, Klaus, a, a conservative in our sense, classic liberal uh, Czech politician, used to wear a University of Chicago necktie, although he'd never been there because he's thought so highly of Gary Becker and Milton Friedman and George Stigler and Frank Knight and all the rest. I, I actually wrote a column. Once it began, the Cold War was over, and the University of Chicago won it. <laughs> um, so I want to I want to sort of end on one um, note. Um, uh, people should absolutely buy uh, American Happiness, and um, it's it's a wonderful tour through um, a kind of rough time and about being able to see how one holds aloft a lantern during stormy times. Um, but people should also look at, uh, and buy buying is important, the conservative sensibility, um, which I interviewed you about on C-SPAN a while back. Yes. And, and, um, I just sort of want to end on this point because you're the conservative sensibility lays out more forcefully and contemporaneously the one of my long-standing obsessions and just so you know this podcast is very much a exercise in me having guests on to convince me that i've been right about everything so just you're you're, you're playing your part (laughs) but um uh it's a tendency i learned from ben wattenberg but no so the uh uh milton freeman you what brought this to mind is milton freeman you know once wrote a letter to National Review saying libertarians are not conservative. Friedrich Hayek wasn't a conservative. He even wrote an essay saying why I'm not a conservative. But if you actually read Hayek's essay, why I'm not a conservative, he's talking about demised and all of these sort of blood and soil thrown in altar conservatives of continental Europe. And he says explicitly in America, it's the one place where you can be a defender of liberty and call yourself a conservative at the same time because Americans are trying to conserve a revolution. And um, and I would go on to say Hayek also calls himself an old Whig in that, which is what Burke described himself as. Regardless, um, uh, that is essentially the takeaway from the conservative sensibility is that, that America is just different and that in America, conservatives are actually conserving a radical idea. And you have been an exemplar of all that. So anyway, you can tee yeah, off on that yeah. any way you like. Well, in the phrase American conservatism, the adjective does a lot of work. 
Right. Because it says we, we crossed the Atlantic and things are different. I think I said to you two years ago when we were talking about this, that someone, I think it was Virginia Postrel or someone, right, said the story of the Bible reduced to one sentence is God created men and women and promptly lost control of events. Conservatives <laughs> say, good, we don't want events controlled. Uh, we, we want excitement and disagreement and all the rest. Uh, we, we, we like uncertainty because uncertainty is means the fecundity of freedom can work. A woman g- giving her maiden speech in the House of Commons a few years ago said, democracy is like sex. If it's not messy, you're not doing it right. <laughs> and, and conservatives are, I think, pretty good at that, uh, saying that, there are transaction costs to freedom. There are transaction costs to democracy. We'll pay them all because uh, that's what we purchase with this is, uh, again, the fecundity of freedom. All right. With that, I just want to say, um, you know, people say it's not a good idea to meet your heroes, but I have to say, George, you've handled it very well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And, uh, Who hasn't said in the end, every hero becomes a bore? Uh, (laughs) um sounds it sounds a little bit like a bismarck with no man is a hero to his valet um um but thank you very much for doing this i really appreciate it i enjoyed it i always enjoyed it well i've got another book in the works i only write books so i can get on your podcast we're going to take that quote Uh, (laughs) (laughs) thanks again thank you all right, so George has left the studio, as it were, and um, I got a lot out of that. I like talking to George. I was just telling Caleb and Guy after he left that even though I, I, I've become pretty friendly with, with George Will, I've known him for a while, I've been to his house for dinner, um, we've had lunch a few times, um, uh, he's still one of the last guys out there that can... Um, uh, that makes me nervous just to talk to, you know, and I think it kind of, I felt like I kind of sounded nervous. It's just, there's a, there's a, there's a sort of intellectual kind of, uh, brook with no jocularity and, and silliness kind of thing that George gives off that kind of puts me on edge because, well, that's kind of my metier. So anyway, uh, I got a lot out of it. I enjoyed it a great deal. Um, I would have, um, liked to do more, uh, conservative intellectual history stuff, but you know, we needed to cover the waterfront. Um, and, um, I do think that, you know, it is a remarkable thing. You know, George is a very strange creature for Washington because he is a fixture of the conservative has been a fixture of the conservative and journalistic establishment for um my entire adult lifetime basically but he never really went um native as it were i remember you know people being stunned by how george could still in the 90s and 2000s just take the conservative establishment the republican establishment to the woodshed when he felt like it, um, or when he thought it was deserved, um, without fear of losing face or influence or any of that kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's a really fascinating thing, just how intellectually fearless he has been. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not good at giving or receiving compliments, but it's, it's amazing. And he's, um, one of the only guys of his generation uh, first of all, left, uh, but second of all, um, who has not um, bent the knee to the populist tide at all. And um, there are precious few of those kinds of people left, and I'm I'm deeply grateful to him. And so uh, I figured I'd say all that here because you never want to make George Will blush. Um, and that's about all I got for today. Uh, the plan is to have Scott Gottlieb on, uh, later this week. So we've had a nice run of podcasts and, um, I don't know about the Friday ruminant or any of that stuff yet, but we'll figure that out. And, um, other than that, please become a 
paid member of the dispatch community. Great and wonderful things are coming. And um, it's been a great two years. And I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. That is essentially the takeaway from the conservative sensibility is that conservatives yes. in America, I was wait for the sirens to go by. <laughs> Sorry. Probably Harris going out for coffee. <laughs> or coming to get you. Yeah. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.